As Carol mentioned last night, one of the most important areas of grasping described by the Buddha is grasping at ideas of self or personality view. And one of the main ways this manifests in our experience is through mana, conceit, dunkel. That's tonight's topic. And I know some of you have practiced with this theme quite a bit some years ago and hopefully since. For others, it may be new. It's not something you find a lot of uh, information in Buddhist text for some reason. Mana, the, the Pali word, can be translated as conceit or pride or haughtiness or arrogance. It's really the comparing mind. I'm better than or I'm worse than or I'm equal to. And the wholesome opposite of mana the qualities like self-appreciation, simplicity, humility, dignity. There's a story about humility, but in fact revealing mana, conceit. The old rabbi was lying in bed quite ill. His students and followers were sitting around his bed, whispering, they were praising the rabbi's unexcelled virtues. Since the time of Solomon, no one was wiser than him, said one. And his faith, it's similar to the faith of Abraham, said another. His patience is similar to that of, of Job, said the third. Only in Moses do we find someone who conversed with God as closely as our rabbi did, said another one. The rabbi seemed restless. When everyone had left the house, his wife inquired, did you hear how they, were, how they all praised you? Indeed, said the rabbi. Then why are you so agitated? She asked. My humility, he complained. No one mentioned my humility. <laughs> One could ask, why talk about conceit? What's its relevance for our practice? The answer is simple. Conceit, mana, is very closely related to our sense of self and the way we identify with it and then get attached to it. In other words, it's closely related to the way we create suffering for ourselves by creating a sense of separateness and alienation. And therefore, through understanding conceit, we can learn a lot about freeing ourselves from suffering and about connectedness and love and compassion. I always found it difficult to give meditation instructions on non-self, on anatta. Impermanence, change, is much more easily visible 
in meditation if one chooses to look. But one cannot easily describe anatta, non-self, and then just look and see it. Here's a Chinese saying that shows why it is more difficult to recognize non-self. It says, It is difficult to catch a black cat in a dark room, particularly when there is no cat. You see the difficulty. We're recognizing that something isn't there that isn't there. So I'd like to talk about what is meant by this self, which supposedly isn't there. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition of the Gelukpa has an interesting way of approaching non-self. Here, one begins by observing how this seeming self or sense of self arises, appears, and manifests in our mind. And then one watches how it happens that one spontaneously and automatically identifies with this sense of I or sense of self, separate self, and then gets attached to it. Once this process has been seen and understood through careful meditation and observation, one starts to see through this apparent but mistaken sense of self. So it's studying it. We see how the feeling comes up and it's just a feeling of separateness, of me different from others. That's not the problem. But then the identification comes, then the attachment comes, then the suffering comes. So this process is studied. I believe that observing mana, conceit, is a good way to access the understanding of self and of non-self. In order to understand how the sense of I or of self and that of mana works, one needs to look at the origin of this whole process. The root of the problem is ignorance, not understanding and the ensuing delusion. Delusion, Toishong, is built into our normal moment-to-moment perception. It's really built in. And it causes us to see things, people, beings, as if they were self-existing, as if they were independently from everything around them existing as separate entities. As if independent of everything else, as if independent of their causes and the conditions, as if independent of their parts, as if independent of our conceptualization, as if they were separate self-contained entities, as if we were separate self-contained entities. We perceive all beings, all people, including ourselves, as if they, as if we were independent selves, or as if they or we had somewhere inside here, you know, a kind of independent something, fredness. For the scholars among you, this delusion, it's the 
third of the four reversed perceptions or vipalasa. Seeing what is existing dependent on causes and conditions as existing as a separate independent self. Seeing as atta what is anatta. This delusion, this deluded perception gives rise to race to a strong sense of self in us. Not constantly, but often. Whenever this sense of I is present, is felt, we tend to identify with it. We are I. This actually happens to me. It really is mine. I, me, mine arise and get grasped and then clung to with attachment. And right there, we're stuck in samsara and the suffering arises. I suffer. This process of identification with the seemingly real I and then the grasping and holding on to this I is called in Pali ditti or mitya ditti, mistaken view or maybe better unrealistic or deluded view. It's really this process that we need to recognize, to see in action over and over again see how it happens, how we do it or how it does it. And it's out of this process, out of this incorrect perception or view of oneself that mana, conceit, arrogance or pride arises. And as mentioned before, it arises through comparing oneself with I versus you, I compared to others. How do I look? What am I worth compared to those? Am I better than? Am I more important than? Am I more interesting or intelligent than? Am I prettier or more attractive than? Am I stronger than? Or do I sit still longer than in the morning in the retreat? Do I get up earlier than <laughs> by night? Do I stay up longer than? Or am I worse than? Am I less important than? Am I less interesting? Uh, less intelligent than? Less attractive than? Am I weaker then I'm probably much less concentrated than the guy next to me or whoever, you see. Or am I equal to, maybe I'm actually equal to, am I as important as, am I equally interesting or equally intelligent as, am I as attractive as, as I, as strong as. This function and the sense, the feeling that comes with this process is mana. Can you see? Sense of self is present 
and then comparing takes place. Just comparing by itself, it's not the problem. I'm shorter than Samuel. It's true, it's not the problem. (laughs) This fruit is riper than the other. I'll take this one. Makes sense, it's useful. So it's not the comparing in itself. We use that. We want to make intelligent judgments. There is even a Buddha wisdom called the discerning wisdom of a Buddha. The unterscheidende Weisheit, Buddha Weisheit, is very helpful. It's the wisdom that can discern what creates suffering and bondage and what causes happiness and inner freedom. It's important. Mana comes about from an emotional comparison of I better than, I worse than, and creates a sense of separation. So that's different. And depending on how the comparison turns out, we get a good feeling, it's pleasant, or we get a bad, an unpleasant feeling. But eventually the process is always painful. Whenever there is a bad feeling, I'm more stupid, I'm more unattractive. Suffering is obvious. Who wants to be more stupid? unattractive. Whenever there's a good good feeling or just an okay feeling, then things are all right for the moment. But somehow we know that things keep on changing even when we don't meditate. Someone better than I could appear any time. Someone prettier, prettier, more attractive, more handsome than I could enter the scene. The weak one suddenly shows strength that weren't apparent at first. The other one, who looks slightly dumb, suddenly turns out to be highly intelligent. My position, I'm better than, is extremely unstable. And with it, the good, pleasant feeling it can go the other way any moment. Therefore, I need to be vigilant. I need to be on guard. I need to watch out. I need to put myself in the right light, hide my weaknesses. I need to choose groups where I feel better than and not groups where I feel worse than. Or I need to exaggerate or to boast, a little bit at least. The bike ride I did gets a few miles longer. The mountain I climbed gets higher and steeper. A little, not too much. My success story becomes more colorful. Or, depending on personality, I change my strategy. I move into making understatements. You know, I prefer short bike rides anyway. I've never been a good mountain climber. I don't really need to look good, whatever. So in this way, we allow the others to feel better. And then this gives them a good feeling. And therefore, they like us. 
So can we get a good feeling? Better than, worse than, equal to, it's mana at work. And it's always restless, it's always tiresome, and never quite okay. Mana causes suffering. Mana, conceit, also brings about further kilesas, or further afflicting or tormenting emotions. We become envious or jealous towards those who actually are better than us in a certain field, or towards those we're afraid that they could become better than us, or towards those we believe to be better than us. We find ourselves in competition with those we see as being more or less equal to us. We look down upon those who in fact are worse than us or who we simply believe to be worse than us. In this way, an atmosphere of tension or even of animosity is created and more suffering is there. This attitude also makes us vulnerable. This way we have to constantly protect ourselves. Furthermore, with mana present, it's impossible to hear what others have to say. It's impossible to learn from others. I think that's a tough one in many fields, but especially with the Dharma. When we can't listen or we can't hear, we can't learn, then there's no inner development. So it can be quite sad. See, because we think we already know or we know better. Or our mind is filled with subtle conceit or gross conceit. And there is no space for something new. There's a story of the very learned professor. He's read and studied everything about Zen. He actually knows a lot more than the master. He actually knows a lot more than the master. So on his visit with the master, he keeps on talking and talking and telling the master of all the stuff he knows about the practice, about the scriptures and all that. And then the master listens and then he offers tea. He pours tea in the professor's cup and he pours and pours and pours. And the professor says, Master, stop. The cup is over full. Nothing can go into it anymore. Right, says the master. So is your mind. It's so full, nothing can go into it anymore. Empty your mind and you'll have a chance to see and to understand. That fullness, that's really what conceit can do. And it can do it in certain areas. doesn't mean that it always does it, but to notice when it creeps in. Mana, conceit itself, is one of the unwholesome factors or functions of heart and mind. It's a kilesa. In one of the Buddhist systems, it's even seen as one of the basic or as the root kilesa. This means it's a tormenting emotion that causes suffering and it's even a very fundamental one. 
Mana is also one of the ten so-called fetters of existence. Inner emotional qualities that bind us to samsara. It's said that only the fourth, on the fourth stage of enlightenment, when all kilesa, when all conflicting emotions and all delusions are dissolved and uprooted, will all the aspects of mana, even the most subtle ones, have disappeared. So only fully liberated ones or eight-stage bodhisattvas will be completely free from mana. In other words, it's very tenacious, sticky. It also means at this point we don't want to get rid of mana or we don't want to judge ourselves for having it. Rather, we want to see it, we want to get to know it, we want to study it. Now, to study and explore the way it works and manifests. And at the same time, we also want to get to know its wholesome opposites. Self-appreciation, modesty, humility, dignity. And see how these affect us. More on this later on. In order to be able to, to see and, and study all of this, we need examples. We need to observe mana in action. There are plenty of examples of mana. I think it's actually one of the easier ones to see it, of all the, the difficult aspects that may be in our hearts and minds. When I started to prepare a workshop on mana some years ago, I also began to really see mana in action in my mind. Sometimes several times per minute. It's so quick. A Burmese text mentions four kinds of mana. First is conceit through birth or descent, herkunft, abstammung, status, nationality, where we come from. One is conceited because of being part of a particularly noble or wealthy or famous family. Or one is made to believe that this is the case maybe by our parents. Or one comes from a special town or city or nation. And as we all know, the place, the country we come from is always special, of course. I believe nationalism, patriotisms are great manifestations of conceit and great suffering, or they cause great suffering. Or one believes to be part of a specially irrelevant place or a specially irrelevant family. The emphasis is on particularly or specially this or that. Something special. Next is conceit through wealth. One is conceited because of one's wealth, one's possessions, inherited or arrived at by chance or earned by oneself. 
or one finds oneself particularly poor and is proud to be poor, looks down upon all those who are rich. When I was five or six years old, my dad bought his first car. That's back in the 40s. I was really proud because it was the first car in our whole neighborhood. What I didn't know and only found out quite a bit later, we were living in a very poor neighborhood. <laughs> so, conceit of birth or descent, conceit of wealth. Next is conceit through knowledge. I find that very interesting. Panya mana. One is conceited because of one's education, of one's knowledge or one's skills. One is intelligent, went to a good school or got this or the other professional training or one believes to be educated or intelligent. All this is panyamana. Or perhaps one is a little bit wise. One had some good insights, maybe even some deep insights in one's meditation. One has a good understanding of the Dharma and is therefore a little conceited. That's also panyamana. Or we think of ourselves as particularly uneducated or unintelligent. That too is panyamana. Spiritual conceit seems to be part of this. It's extremely widespread, I find. Also among Buddhists. Also among Dharma practitioners. Especially widespread among spiritual groups. We may say, you know, there are many kinds of Buddhist meditation. And actually many kinds of uh, different uh, Vipassana insight meditation techniques. And of course, they're all good, really. They're all good. And yet, and yet, perhaps we've tried them all and have come to this one, you know, my practice. Maybe it's just a little bit better than the others. Okay? People belonging to Mahayana schools of Buddhism often have very disparaging views of those they call Hinayanas, supposed to be really egotistical. It's a small vehicle. On the other hand, people belonging to Theravada schools of Buddhism often believe that, for example, Tibetan Mahayana Buddhists, it's so weird, it's not even Buddhism. Personally, I'm at home in both traditions, and they're both incredibly rich and liberating. But it's often been difficult, not so much now anymore, but it's often been difficult to live in both of them. Some years ago in India, a friend of mine was a monk, ordained, ordained in one of the Tibetan traditions or schools. A very young boy monk who was part of another Tibetan tradition asked my friend for his lineage, for his tradition, for his affiliation within Tibetan Buddhism. When my friend told him, the boy said spontaneously, Oh, tree without fruits. 
The boy was perhaps eight. And he had no idea of what was taught in my friend's tradition, nor what was taught in his own. But he had already been told by his elders what to think about the other tradition. Sometimes spiritual conceit is obvious. More often, it's present in quite subtle ways. Interesting to really take a good look. And we can find these tendencies in many areas, not just in dharma surroundings. Us, the environmentally conscious, isn't it? Us, the socially aware, which just simply better than those self-centered, unconscious, ignorant, whoever. Could that be mana in action? Sometimes one can be conceited because one is into recycling one's garbage, while others aren't. It doesn't take so much for mana to show up. So conceit of descent or birth, conceit of wealth, conceit of knowledge. Next is conceit of physical appearance. One looks good, one is pretty, one is handsome, one is attractive. Or one believes to be pretty or handsome or attractive and is conceited because of it. Vanity, eitelkeit, seems to be part of this. We get a compliment for the way we look. Can we simply enjoy it and say, thank you? I must say, I hardly remember last time that happened. But never mind. <laughs> Or does conceit creep in? A friend of mine, a while ago, um, lost two front teeth. And for medical reasons, they could only be replaced after two months. He told me that this was affecting his sense of self-worth in unexpectedly strong ways. You know, <laughs> When we wear clothes which look good on us, which we like, in which we like ourselves, perhaps new clothes, and we feel good. Is this mana or not? To really look. Look how it feels, what it does. Not in order to judge or to condemn, but in order to really explore and, and learn. Our clothes are in the laundry. I really have nothing to wear. You know, very famous phrase. I have to wear this old stuff that doesn't look good on me. What will they think of me? Is this mana? Might this be mana? Conceit of origin, of wealth, of knowledge, of physical appearance. Shyness seems closely related to mana. Have a look when you get ready to speak in a group or maybe in the hall in front of many others. That doesn't happen here so much. When you think, I said that well, or when you think, I never can say things as good as, or I'm always... 
or I can do as well as anyone else. To see, especially in public with people. I heard that uh, there was a survey in the States. People were asked what was their biggest fears in life. And public speaking was first. Fear of death was fourth. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of, of stage fright, right? Lumpen fever. I think it's pure mana. A further area I'd like to mention is that of the so-called winds of the world. We may find that we have a good reputation, we get praise, we get positive feedback, we're successful, we win. It's easy to begin feeling conceited, just subtly perhaps, or very obviously so. But things are often out of control. Suddenly we may find that in a certain group or with opponents or on the job, we have a bad reputation. We didn't know, but suddenly we hear. We get criticized. We get negative feedback. We experience failure. We lose. Again, mana can come up and make things worse. Not only do we experience loss, but in addition we feel, I'm not good enough, I'm worse than, I'm less successful than. It's another way or other ways of making ourselves suffer. A few others area, uh, other areas I want to mention. Me, uh, name dropping. I find that's a really interesting area. To be someone because of someone else. Uh, by the way, you know, um, the other day when I was on the phone with Richard Gere, he told me, um, here's my own example. <laughs> Not this one, no, it's coming only. <laughs> A few years ago, the um, Dalai Lama was at the University of Zurich for a day. And I sat in one of the auditoriums you know, they have this many auditoriums with big video screens. You, you don't actually see them, but you see what's going on on the screen. Then after the event was over, you know, walking down towards the exit, I saw the Dalai Lama surrounded by bodyguards, of course, and by attendants and by very important people moving towards the exit door. And there was a big crowd, but I spotted a glass wall right next to the exit door and I went to stand behind it so I would see him pass by. So when he actually got there, he saw me and he came right up to the glass wall, you know, to say hello, you know, to his thing. <laughs> Wave goodbye. Made me very happy. And I actually have spent quite a lot of time with him at teachings and Buddhist teacher conferences and years ago in personal interviews. But the rush, the excitement I felt in that moment was definitely also mana. You know, such a special person recognizes me in the crowd, comes over to say hello. 
while in fact we all know the Dalai Lama does that with people he's never seen before in his life. <laughs> he often does it with people he's never seen. So interesting, isn't it? I just got a good example today. You know, there's this high-pressure area, this Hochdruckgebiet, which will bring us back the summer and the sun and the joy. You know, they have names nowadays. They're always named. This one is named after me. Hochdruckgebiet Fred. <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> Of course, mana works the other way around, too. Hurt pride. In a traffic situation, you know, someone cuts into my way. Someone takes away a right of way. My right of way, actually. You know, idiot. Boom. Mana. Or someone takes my walking space on retreat. It's 11 days that I walk on this spot now, back and forth. Everyone knows by now that's where I walk. You know, is she blind? Great opportunities to watch mana. Conceit of descent, conceit of wealth, conceit of knowledge, conceit of physical appearance, then it's shyness, success and failure, name dropping. The last small area I want to mention is I'm um, picking up things that someone dropped. Usually not the problem. Yet it depends who it is who dropped something. Bending down in front of someone is a little like bowing. Sometimes I find myself not doing it. Sometimes I do it, but sometimes I find myself not doing it. It's so interesting, you know, is it laziness? Just too lazy? Is it because of mana? It also depends who dropped what. A pen? Fine. Dirty handkerchief? It's different. I think bending down comes very close to bowing. And bowing is a great gesture can also be a practice. And yet, too, I notice at least, it depends on when, where, in front of what, or towards what, and in front of whom we bow, or I bow at least. And it also depends on who is present watching. The same thing one might do here, or coming in the door, whatever, depending on who will be around. Interesting. Play with it, if you like to. You can bow to what's worthy and noble. You can bow to a symbol of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, to liberating wisdom and great compassion. You can bow to your own Buddha nature. That's what we do when we bow to each other. That of others present here. And of course, no one has to bow here. I think it's an interesting practice. 
Some of us did the 100,000 full prostrations, you know, the full Niederwerfungen. Very interesting practice. If your knees are okay, I would recommend. This leads us to the positive, wholesome aspects related to and yet opposite of mana. When mana is not in action and our hearts and minds are not busy with tanha, with desire or aversion, then the beautiful, positive, wholesome qualities can manifest. And they do manifest. Self-appreciation, self-esteem or modesty, humility and dignity, pride in the sense of genuine acknowledgement and appreciation of our potential for wholesome inner development, for liberation, for enlightenment. Pride in the sense of appreciation for our meaningful and positive conduct and actions. And qualities like gratefulness. His brother David Steindl rast on humility. He says, Today humility is not the popular virtue, but only because it is misunderstood. Many think that humility is a pious lie and a fromme lüge, committed by people who claim to be worse than they know themselves to be, so that they can secretly pride themselves in being so humble. In truth, however, to be humble means simply to be earthy. The word humble is related to humus, humus, the vegetable mold of topsoil. It is also related to human and to humor. If we accept and embrace the earthiness of our human condition and a bit of humor helps, we shall find ourselves doing so with humble pride. In our best moments, humility is simply pride that is too grateful to look down on anyone. Thomas Akempis wrote, If you wish to know something truly wholesome, to learn something meaningful, practice the great art of liking to be unknown and of being seen as no one. Simplicity, modesty and humility go together with dignity and are the most beautiful expressions of our humanness. And yet, as soon as we begin to make something special out of it, feel special about it, we're back to mana. Here's a story by Ramdas. One day, the rabbi bursts into the synagogue in an outburst of religious fervor. He uh, fell on his knees and started beating his chest, shouting, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this act of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi, fell on his knees and called out, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. Now the caretaker who had watched it all from a corner, he couldn't restrain himself anymore. He joined the two, also fell on his knees and called out, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Whereupon the rabbi nudged the cantor and pointed at the caretaker and said, 
Look who also thinks he's nobody. So humility, self-appreciation, dignity, positive pride. The German word for dignity, Würde, stems apparently from the root value, worthiness, worth. It's defined as the awe-inspiring value innate in every human being. Dignity is our true nature. In the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition, one will get an empowerment or an initiation into the Buddha form one is practicing, maybe Tara or Avalokiteshvara or Manjushri. The, the original deep meaning of this ritual is to take the place of this Buddha, of the fully enlightened Tara, for example, female Buddha. It's in fact, to realize that in one's nature, one is this Buddha. And then in one's practice, one develops what is called taking the pride of being the Buddha, taking the pride of being Tara. It's pride in a completely positive sense. So we behave as if we were Buddhas, the way Buddhas behave. We behave the way Tara behaves. We recognize, we perceive all other beings as Buddhas as well. Maybe that's what's meant by dignity. And we reconnect, we remember our own innate dignity. Before I end, just a few words on the question. What helps about mana, against mana, sorry? What can we do maybe? And how can we develop the, the corresponding wholesome qualities? To notice, to see, to recognize mana with mindfulness, that's really the key. That's the most important. Just to see how it happens, just to study it, to watch it. Here at the retreat, notice when it's present. And I have no doubt it will be present quite many times. And label it perhaps, just, oh, conceit, there, look, conceit. Not will conceit. It's interesting. And then outside the retreat, actually to write it down when we see it, talk about it, talking about it is good. Laugh, to laugh about it. Because mana is actually quite funny. In a very strange way, it is quite funny. We've never laughed in a workshop as much as the ones on mana, people became so so honest and it was so funny to watch all their examples of, of how it manifests. Bowing can help because it's an interesting, it can be an interesting contrast to, to mana and the sense of conceit or pride. Murita, sympathetic joy and appreciation helps a lot. Particularly appreciation of one's own wholesome qualities and actions and deeds and those of others. Exactly what we practice every night at 9.30. To really do that, to do that, not just because we say it's a good moment to do it for three minutes, but to do it in one's life, do it every day in one's life. And if you ever 
come in the clinch of thinking you might be too proud by appreciating your good stuff. And you have to choose between appreciation and pride. Choose appreciation. That's where we have the problem. It's okay to be even somewhat pride on our wholesome actions, on our good qualities, on our innate goodness. I'd like to, to close with this statement by Hamid Almas on our intrinsic preciousness. What is the point, it's called. So what is the point of waiting? What exactly are you waiting for? Is somebody going to give you what you always wanted? Will a train come from heaven bringing you goodies? Nothing could ever happen, could ever be as good, as precious, as who you are. What stops you from being, from being present is nothing but your hope for the future. But it is a mirage. You'll never get there. The mirage stops you from seeing the obvious, the preciousness of being, the preciousness of your being, of our own being. 